Well, good morning. Firstly, I'm really glad I'm not the only one that gets confused sometimes between Abraham, Abraham, Sarah, and Sarah. So if I use them interchangeably, I hope you'll excuse that. Can I just start by bringing you greetings from uh, TCM? We are praying for you, especially during this time that you're between pastors. Having gone through that ourselves, I, I, I hope I pushed all the right buttons. <laughs> Having gone through that ourselves very recently, we know something of the extra load that times like this can sometimes bring. So you are very much in our prayers. Genesis 16 is, is an absolutely fascinating chapter. There's so much in it. Can't do it justice in 30 to 35 minutes. So it is well worth studying again at yourselves this week. Now, up to this point, God had promised Abram that he would be made into a great nation. He would be blessed. His name would be great. His offspring would possess the promised land, and they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's a promise given in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. But it had been 10 long years since Abram and Sarai, along with his nephew Lot, had left Haran in obedience to the Lord's command. Abram was about 75 years old when they left. So now who we are in Genesis 16, he's 85 or 86, and Sarai remains childless. You know, I wonder if that was us, what we would be thinking. It had been 10 years. It had been a heavy cross to bear. Has God forgotten? Did we misunderstand something? Did we sin and lose the blessing? Why hasn't God done what he said he was going to do? And so their patience is gone. You know, for whatever reason, it just, it isn't happening. Maybe we'd better do something for ourselves, you know, just, just to get things moving. Isn't it always tempting when God's promises are not fulfilled in what we think is a reasonable time frame to start to doubt, to start to grow impatient? And how many have discovered, sometimes the hard way, that God's time is often very different from ours? Perhaps you're waiting for God to do something for you, to deliver you from something, and it just hasn't happened yet. Maybe you've started to wonder, is God ever going to keep his promise? Will I ever be delivered from this situation? Will I ever overcome that temptation? You know what God has promised. You've prayed. You've gone on. You've been faithful. You've tried to be faithful every day. But nothing really seems to have changed. And you start to wonder, will it ever? And then the temptation arises, just as it does for Abraham and Sarai here, to try to sort it out in a human way. Verse 2, the Hagar plan is born. But you know, having to wait for the fulfillment of a promise is not at all uncommon. Well, think about it. Moses had to wait 40 years in the desert before being called to go back and lead the people out of Egypt. David was on the run for up to 14 years from Saul before he was made king over Israel after the prophecy from Samuel. And when Saul died, he only got a partial fulfillment. There was a civil war, more waiting before he would be king of the whole. How about the so-called silent years? 400 years excuse me, between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New the long, long wait for the promised Messiah. You know, our first application this morning is really quite simple, if sometimes very difficult. It is to go on, to persevere, to not quit, to not give up. God never, ever 
fails to keep his promises. It is impossible for him to do so. So we can have confidence he will deliver in his time. David did become king. Moses did lead the people out of Egypt. The promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. The Messiah did come. And all the promises that you and I have in the Bible, every one of them, without exception, will be fulfilled in God's time. So we go on. And we go on without losing heart. In 1869, a man called John Powell led a team to map what was then called the Grand Canyon. It was an expedition that quickly ran into difficulties. They encountered dangerous rapids. They were beaten mercilessly by ferocious white water and bad weather. Their food got spoiled. They were exhausted, almost out of supplies. You can imagine how miserable it must have been. Hungry, tired, cold, wet, alone, isolated. And then they come to another set of rapids. Powell decides that they're going to go on. But three men refuse. They decide to quit and try and walk out of the canyon. Powell and the others do go on, get through the rapids, and find that was the last set they had to navigate. They succeed, they are safe, and they reap the rewards of their expedition. The three men who left were never seen again. Friend, if you're battling this morning, I just want to encourage you to keep going. Your deliverance may be closer than you think. And you're in good company. We all have battles, every one of us, and we will have them as long as we are in these bodies. But we are never alone, and our victory is fully, certainly guaranteed. So see it through. Determine to be a conqueror in Christ. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, we have the letters from Christ to seven churches, and each one has a promise or promises at the end of it. And what I find striking is that at the end of those letters, there's a promise to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers, I will give the crown of life. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, and so on. To the one who conquers. What does that tell us? Remembering that these letters are written to churches, it tells us that we, as believers, are in a fight. It tells us that sanctification, being made more and more like Christ, is a process. It's a now and it's a not yet. Now we are saved fully and completely and irreversibly if we are in Christ, 1 John 5.13. But we're also being saved. We're being transformed from what we still are in our fallen human nature. This is why the Apostle Paul himself talks about the need to keep pressing on. Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Friends, if he as an apostle needs to press on and persevere, surely we need to as well. Now, it could be that there are some here this morning who are thinking, you know, I knew that. I know what I should have done, but I didn't. I didn't press on. I quit. I turned away. I blew it. What about me? Is there any hope for me? One who knew the promise, but messed it up. A million times and more, the answer is yes. And you're in good company again. 
Remember the last chapter you looked at, how in Genesis 15, the promise to Abraham is repeated by the Lord after his sin in Egypt. Remember his cowardice and his faithlessness when he lied about Sarai being his sister. I, I don't know about you, I find it both sobering and encouraging at the same time to read about our heroes and heroines of the faith. We really do get them warts and all, don't we? They were not perfect. And remember as well in chapter 15, it was the Lord who made and promised to uphold the covenant, not Abraham. We all sadly still fail. 1 John 1.8 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But God does not fail. So if you have fallen, confess, repent, get up, go again, hold fast to the promises of scripture, endure in faith, and obedience. Back here in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarai lose sight of all that. They have waited and waited and nothing has happened. And now Abraham is 85 or 86. Sarai is about 10 years younger. And it now looks impossible, doesn't it? And so Sarai turns to a custom of the day whereby a barren wife could have children that would become her property through a slave. We're still in verse 2. Don't worry, we won't take quite so long on the others. You will get away for lunch, I promise you. But again, this is a human solution. It's a human way of thinking, a human way of working. And whenever people try to fulfill God's purposes in a way like that, it never ends well. And as the story unfolds in Genesis, you'll indeed see how that plays out. The prophecy about Ishmael in verse 12, of course, comes to fruition. A wild donkey in constant conflict. God does not need a helping hand. He doesn't need brilliant personalities, strong characters to fulfill his purpose. He is in control. He wants humble, willing, obedient, patient people who will trust him and keep going on, using the gifts and opportunities he gives them in his way. There is no room for Frank Sinatra's proud boast, I did it my way in the kingdom of God. We are not smarter than God. We should not try to be smarter than God. We should trust and obey, even if it doesn't look like it's working. He knows, he sees, the outcome is never in doubt. Back in verses 3 and 4, Sarai's plan is put into action. And by the way, the execution of this plan shows us something else as well. And that's Abraham's guilty part in this whole affair by agreeing to it. He singularly fails to show godly leadership. He should have stopped it right away, but he doesn't. It goes along with it. It kind of has echoes of the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you noticed this before, but Adam was with Eve when she ate the fruit. It's in Genesis 3.6. He passively allowed Eve to be fooled by Satan and then became a part of the conspiracy when he should have stopped it immediately, even before it developed. So at first reading back here in chapter 16, verse 5, when Sarai says effectively, Abraham, this is your fault. It's all down to you. I don't know about you. We might be tempted to think, oh, the poor man. I mean, Sarai has this great idea. And when it goes south, suddenly it's all your fault. Look what you've done. God will hold you accountable. Sometimes those who are most loud and forward in appealing to God with rash and bold statements 
are still guilty of pursuing a bad cause. Sarai forgot or ignored the fact that she'd had the idea, just as Hagar would later seem to forget the fact that she was the one who provoked Sarai to drive her away. The fact is that neither Abram nor Sarai cover themselves in glory here. But Abram was the husband. He was the one who had received the promise. He was the one who headed the household. Sarai had the idea, but he showed a lack of leadership in going along with it. And when Sarai confronts him, he slopes his shoulders. Hey, she's your servant, verse 6. Notice he doesn't refer to her as his second wife. Your servant, do with her as you want. He ducks his responsibility again. Poor leadership so often raises serious problems in the world, in our families, and in our churches as well. Being a good leader is hard work. It is not about being bossy. It is about serving and inspiring and encouraging others so they will know the truth and work with you to achieve a worthwhile goal to the glory of God. But a necessary part of that is being willing to make tough and even unpopular decisions, to be able to stand up and say no sometimes. If you always want to be popular, you will not make a good leader in any context. Sometimes doing the right thing is hard and it is not well received, but it is a crucial service. And can I just ask you this morning, pray for your leaders here at LBC. It is not easy. Many of the stresses and pressures they face will be unseen to most of you. And they have the tremendous responsibility of making difficult decisions. So pray for them, support them, help them. Be like the Bereans in Acts 17. Check everything against scripture, but then help them. Be a part of the solution to the problems that will inevitably arise. And if you want to be a leader, then conduct yourself in a way that others can follow you without difficulty. Set an example, show that you care, be humble, stay close to God, and determine to do the right thing in his sight, no matter what. Well, Abraham and Sarai together act foolishly. But at first glance, it seems to work. Verse 4, Hagar becomes pregnant. But there's a problem, and actually there will be several. Again, whenever people choose their own way over God's way, you can be sure there will be serious consequences. Again, as you'll see as this story unfolds. And the first problem affects the family. Verses 4 to 6, Hagar despises Sarai, and Sarai treats Hagar so badly that she runs away. So verse 7, Hagar finds herself by a spring in the wilderness on the way to Shur, which incidentally is on the route to Egypt. She's going back to Egypt. She must be pretty desperate. I mean, she's in a physical wilderness. She's alone. She's vulnerable. She's not where she was supposed to be, not doing what she's supposed to be doing, and heading even further away. And isn't it interesting that that is where God meets her? Doesn't he often act mercifully by pricking our consciences or affecting events to stop us from wandering even further away sometimes? And by the way, look how the angel of the Lord identifies her in verse 8. Hagar, servant of Sarai. Not formally servant of Sarai, but still servant of Sarai. And he proceeds to tell her what will happen regarding Ishmael. And his name literally means God will hear. And he tells her about her other descendants. And then he commands her to go back and submit to, Sarah's, to Sarai's authority. 
verse 9. How would you feel if that was you? Go back into that bad situation and submit. This whole topic of submission is really sensitive in today's culture, largely because we have so many wrong ideas about what it really is. But the reality is the Bible has an awful lot to say about it. It is not weakness. It is not obsequiousness. It is not groveling. It does not undermine somebody's worth. And actually, God is really keen on it. Jesus submitted to the Father's will. We must all submit to God. Wives are to submit to husbands. Does it mean we're of different value? Well, of course not. We expect a private soldier to submit to a general's orders. It doesn't make his life any less valuable. We expect citizens to submit to the law, a patient to a doctor, an employee to a manager, and so on. In Matthew 23, 2, Jesus even tells his disciples to submit to the Pharisees, but not to do as they do. In Romans 13, Paul tells his readers, submit to the governing authorities. And that at a time, remember, when they were under control of an oppressive Roman military occupation. But we don't like to submit, do we, really? Why not? Pride. Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law and it cannot. It is pride and rebellion. And incidentally, just to go back to the leadership thing for a minute, if you are not willing or able to submit yourself, you will never make a good leader. You cannot expect others to submit to you if you are unwilling to model that behavior appropriately yourself. I love the Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7. He's one of my heroes. What a great attitude he has to authority. A man under authority with soldiers under him that he commanded. He's willing to submit faithfully and he is willing to exercise authority appropriately without any embarrassment. I love his attitude. I think he hits it right on the head. And again, it is not a call to blind obedience. Our submission to God as revealed in the Bible tops everything and everyone else. There is a huge amount more we could say about this. But we do need to move on. Maybe this is one of the things you'd like to cover in your house groups this week. Well, in verses 7 to 13, we have this incredible exchange between the angel of the Lord, which is a term used for the pre-incarnate Christ, and Hagar by this spring in the wilderness. And from everything that happens here, Hagar quickly grasps that both she and her circumstances are fully known to God, that he is in control. He sees everything. He knows everything. And so Hagar refers to the Lord as a God of seeing, or El Roy in the original language. Verse 13, you are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. God sees. He is omniscient, all-seeing. It's one of his divine attributes, just as he is omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, present everywhere. Just think a little bit about what that means. It means he sees everything that is happening from here and now today at LBC, across the world, to the furthest reaches of the universe. And he's not just there, he is actively there. He created everything from nothing. You found that in the start of your study in Genesis. He sustains everything, every subatomic particle, every blade of grass and tree, every bird and cloud in the sky, every star, every galaxy, absolutely everything. 
I love the hymn, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hand has made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. The sheer wonder of creation, even in its current fallen state, is beyond breathtaking. And when we look at the incredible, irreducible complexity of design, the information in DNA, and countless other such wonders, friend, if you want to be an atheist, you're going to have to have an awful lot more blind faith than any Christian is ever asked to show. David can't help but burst out in Psalm 139. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. If you want to look into the science elements later, just talk to me and I'll gladly point you in the direction of some resources that can help. It is such a source of encouragement to study science under the Lordship of God. God created, God sees, God sustains everything and everyone. Every breath, every pulse is sustained by his divine power. And he doesn't just see generally, but as Hagar points out here, he sees individually as well. Do you ever really think about that? How does that make you feel? The fact that God sees everything, even the secret things, the hidden compassion behind the acts of charity, the persevering prayer in times of difficulty, the secret lust or desire, the other hidden sin that nobody else knows about, every thought, every motive, behind every action, every word, every deed, good or bad, nothing is hidden from him. And he is not slow to act accordingly. David again in Psalm 139, where can I go to escape from your presence? Sorry, excuse me, where can I go to escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. Surely this is both a sober warning to those who reject him, who think he doesn't see, and a tremendous courage and encouragement to those who love him. I hope this morning you're starting to get a deeper and deeper sense of God's greatness and of his love. Isn't it so encouraging to know that even knowing the darkness still in our hearts and minds, he still loves us. If we had to play our true motives and thoughts and attitudes on this screen for everybody to see, I doubt that many of us would have any associates left, let alone friends. But he sees all that. He knows all that. And still, he loves us. He sees the past. How many are still enslaved by the past, by some sin or experience that marked them so deeply that it still has this unhealthy impact on their lives, even after many years. If that's you, God saw it. He knows. And he still offers forgiveness and renewal. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, no longer to be bound by a yoke of slavery, including the yoke of the past. If you've fallen, he still loves you. And when they are confessed and repented of, he forgets our sins. Isaiah 43, 25. That doesn't mean he develops a bad memory. It means that judicially, they are paid for. They are done with. They are fully forgiven, never to be held against us, never to be raised in the court of judgment. The full price paid once and for all by Jesus on the cross. It is finished. 
one of Satan's most powerful and effective strategies is to convince people that, you know, yeah, that's true, but it's not for you. Not after what you did. Not after what you've been thinking. It might be true for others, but it's not for you. It's too late for you. There's no hope for you. Can I tell you this morning, that is a lie. Whatever has happened, God knows fully. And he still offers a way out, a way of forgiveness and life. So determine to take it. And we all need that. And there's even more. He sees things that we don't even see ourselves. And isn't that a mercy? I think if we saw for a moment all of our sin as it truly is, we would be crushed by the weight of it. Have you noticed that in the process of sanctification that we start to see things and they start to trouble us, that things that we never really gave a thought to before? And that happens as area after area of our lives are illuminated by the Holy Spirit, brought increasingly under his control. His light shines and we see more of the sin that remains. We also see more of the wonder of his love and mercy. That's what the process of sanctification is, that transformation into the likeness of Jesus and his holiness. But I do feel compelled to offer a word of warning. You see, listening to this, you might be tempted to think, none of this, you know, sin doesn't really matter. Well, God sees, but there are no real consequences. He will still love me. He will still forgive me. If you're tempted to think that way, I've got to tell you, think again. There can still be very painful consequences and effects, and sometimes for a very long time when we sin. Ask somebody who's lost a spouse or a family because they were unfaithful, or health because of an addiction, or their business and home because of fraud. Forgiven? If confessed and repented of, absolutely, fully and irreversibly. But what a terrible price sin still carries. There are always consequences. And here in Genesis 16, they happen almost immediately. The cost starts to show family discord, bitterness and jealousy, division, Hagar driven away, and of course the roots were sown for a conflict that continues down through the ages. We must never have a light attitude to sin. There are still consequences. Well as, well as the past and the things we don't see, God sees the future, just as we see here with his prophecy about Hagar and Ishmael, which of course were fulfilled. Ishmael would be the forefather of the Arabian peoples, many of whom are still in conflict against the Jews to this very day. We were praying for Ukraine earlier. We've just come through a pandemic. The world is a volatile place, isn't it? We live in perilous, changing times. Maybe today you wonder what the future holds. God already knows. And I hope that's a comfort to you. It's in his hands. If we die, or if we're in the generation of Christians alive at the rapture, we could not be in better or more secure hands. It will be well for those in Christ, even if the curtain of death threatens. He proved that by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. The Bible contains over 700 prophecies, and it has a perfect track record. Prophecies about Jesus, Israel, Jerusalem, Babylon, Assyria, the flood, Nebuchadnezzar, Edom, and many, many more as well, right up to today. And there are more to come events around the second coming, the new heavens and the new earth. Everyone has come true thus far. Ours is a logical and reasoned faith. His word has proven entirely trustworthy for everything so far, and it will be for everything that lies ahead. 
If you want to know how it's all going to end, if you want to know what the future really holds, some of that has been revealed to us here. We win. That's the summary. We can have great confidence in that. And when we really grasp that, you know, when we really understand he is sovereign, he knows the future, then we know how well he loves us and he will always deliver on his promises. And whatever fears and anxieties arise, we can face them and rejoice knowing that it absolutely will be well, that the very best is yet to come for those in Christ. That's a promise worth clinging to in these days, isn't it? Absolutely. And so, it was very astute of Hagar to refer to him as El Roy, a god of seeing. How much that tells us. And knowing that, Hagar then obeys and goes back and gives birth to Ishmael. Verse 15. And remember, she's going back to the same situation that she'd run away from. But now she goes back knowing the truth and with the promise of God filling her heart. Verse 10. I will greatly multiply your offspring and there will be too many to count. We have far greater promises in Christ, do we not? Far greater. Perhaps today you find yourself in the wilderness. A bad job or boss. Maybe no job. Financial pressures. Addiction. A painful family situation. A grim diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe you don't know where you're going. It's telling, isn't it, that in verse 8 when the angel asks Hagar where she's come from, where she's going, she never actually says where she's going. She doesn't seem to know. Maybe she hoped Abraham would come running after her or a caravan would come and take her back to her native Egypt, but it hasn't happened. She's run away from the family of the promise, from food and shelter and security, and now she is alone in the wilderness. Perhaps you need to go back. Back to a work situation you'd rather avoid. Back to a painful situation. Go back like Hagar remembering the promises of God, knowing his love and care for you, even in, and especially in, the hard times. They are precious to us, are they not? God fulfilled his promises to Hagar. He will fulfill his promises to you. So take heart. Well, as we draw towards a close, I just want to look briefly at some more applications to take away. And the first one is, be prayerful. If we know that God sees all, then we know he sees and hears all our prayers. He is never tuned out. And even if we struggle for words, he sees our hearts. He knows our worship, our positions. He knows our concerns. Try praying the Bible. Use scripture to express what you're trying to say. If you want to praise and worship God, how about Psalm 103? If you want to confess your sin and ask for cleansing, try Psalm 51. There is no shortage for any occasion, and that's a great place to start. Pray always, knowing that he hears and loves you. Secondly, be confident. Everyone here will face the storms of life in some form or another. Setbacks and failures, dangers of different kinds, financial, relational, health, etc. We are never alone. And it is only for a season. Whatever we must pass through, it will end. Philippians 4.4, do not be anxious about anything, Paul writes. But why? Because immediately before that verse we read, The Lord is at hand. He is close. He is not distant. He is with us. However dark the night, it cannot stop his light from reaching us. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1.5. Thirdly, be content. 
Perhaps you've been betrayed or gossiped against, or people have questioned your motives, maybe even your sanity, if you've tried to do something for Christ. None of that is new. God sees it all, and it really should be enough for us to please the audience of one, to be content with his opinion, with his approval. So keep going. Keep trusting in him, knowing his plan is to prosper and not to harm you. You will be vindicated. Fourthly, if you are not a Christian, remember, he sees you completely, he knows, and he calls you personally to be saved. Whatever circumstances you are in, they are no barrier to God. The angel of the Lord found Hagar in the wilderness, and if you are without Christ, you are in the wilderness. Whether you feel it or not, no matter how bright and pleasant your life may or may not be at present, you are in the wilderness. Hagar was a slave at the time, and at that time the world was very cruel to slaves. If you do not have Christ, you are a slave to sin, and sin is an even more cruel taskmaster, and it will take you to hell. God saw Hagar and he sees you. Turn to him. Accept his offer of life. The elders and the others here can help you with that. Go and speak to them. Ask them the questions you've always wanted to. Don't let pride get in the way. Fifthly, if you're a Christian, but something isn't quite right, you know, you've, you've kind of drifted a bit, you've backslidden, you've wandered from the path, then repent and be encouraged as you do so as well. Hagar left the family of promise the house in which there was the knowledge of the true God. She brought her situation on herself, but God still sought her. Where have you come from? What are you leaving by running away from God? How's that working out for you? Where are you going? Into the wilderness of a nominal faith to suffer with hunger and thirst? Back to Egypt, back to the world with its cruelties and idols and darkness? Thinking about where you've come from will show the foolishness of leaving. Thinking about where you're heading for should alert you to the danger and misery that will inevitably lie ahead if there is no repentance. Hagar's mistress was hard on her. Sin is even harder. If the way of obedience is hard and costly, think of the promises that we have. Think of what Christ went through for you and turn back. You will be welcomed. Isaiah 55 verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Think of the prodigal son's return, met with love and grace and forgiveness and compassion. We all need that. We all have to return because we all still sin. Well, one final point as we close. It is one thing to know that there is a God. It is quite another to come into personal contact with him, to experience him, to go beyond knowledge and obedience into confident love and assurance. We don't know that Hagar had even thought about God before this day, but when she meets him, she responds wisely. Now she knows him and she obeys. He's personal to her and he must be personal to us as well. After her encounter, she names the well there, Beer Laharoi, verse 14, which means, well of the living one seeing me. A powerful inscription that perhaps makes other weary travellers stop and think. This well is never dry. And the one who sees us completely bids us today, here and now, come and drink. Be refreshed. Perhaps for the first time. 
perhaps for the millionth time. Come and drink your fill. The well will never be exhausted, and the invitation is for you. Hagar responded wisely to the Lord. Will you? May God bless and keep you all. As we walk life's narrow path, we resolve to go on. Our strength is not sufficient. He promises the grace that we need, not just to get through, but to be more than conquerors in Christ. Amen? Amen. We take our closing hymn, please, and then I'll say a word of prayer to close.